Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Sarah. Hi. Hey, sorry about the trouble there. Oh, it's all right. Uh, how's your internet? The last time I talked to Ryan, you guys were in uh, forest land. It wasn't that good. <laughs> Did it get better? Well- no, I just am. I'm parked somewhere where it's better. <laughs> oh, so I guess like you'll um, you'll never get it out there, or maybe it'll be years to come, or something. No, yeah, it's just not possible. It's kind of a a rural spot of town, even though we're only two miles to downtown. It's just kind of up on this mesa, so hey, you which is be, okay. Yeah, oh, it's totally okay. Especially like I don't know if you heard about this five G stuff coming into. Uh, you know, the urban areas is supposed to be terrible for the, the, the human, the human system. It's going to fry our brains. Yeah. I've been hearing some about EMF stuff. So I don't know. It is kind of scary because we don't know yet. It's, it's new. So. Exactly. Yeah. I just bought a book cause I'm hearing so much about it. I, I'm, maybe I'll get more freaked out or, or who knows, maybe less, yeah. but all right. Thanks for catching up with me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Well, we have something to talk about, starting with the mind-blowing 222 marathon you just threw down. Uh, was that in Berlin? It was, yeah. Um, that's, that's absolutely phenomenal. I want to hear all about it. What's, what is going on? How are you doing this Ageless Wonder performance? <laughs> well, um, it's, you know, it's been kind of in the works for a while, just kind of more behind the scenes because I have had um, injuries every buildup for almost two years now. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of one of those things where I've been moving the ball forward in training, but, um, but unfortunately um, had kind of some setbacks that kept me from really seeing that fitness realized in the marathon. So, um, so yeah, I was really, I was really grateful to have my first fully healthy marathon buildup and, um, and be able to kind of reach more of what I feel like my potential is in the marathon. Um, See it actually realized in a race. It was really nice to have it come together. Well, let's talk about this injury thing, because I want to know, obviously, you're not going for, you're not going for 12th place. You're going for the absolute highest level of female marathon performance in history. You're now on the, on the, uh, I think you're the top six list of all, all time performances in America and, you know, just really going for it. So, or is that injury risk always going to be there as a necessary element of the of the challenge? Or would you look back and say, oops, no, I made a mistake. I can do this without ever getting injured. Where do we stand with that? Yeah, that's a good question, you know, because there's so much that goes into recovery and lack of recovery that leads to injury um, that it's hard to pinpoint, like, what was the one thing. Like, I think it's a combination of things. So, I mean, always in the marathon, I think there's a risk of injury because the goal is basically like to pound your body as much as you can. <laughs> and, and, it, and, you know, you need the pounding. Like you can't like um, this last, actually my, my um, marathon before Berlin was Boston and I got an amazing shape cross training, but I wasn't prepared for the pounding that you need, especially with a, a race with a lot of downhill like that. So like I wasn't even breathing, but my legs were done at like mile 10. So, um, so, you know, you do need a lot of miles. You need, um, like how Ryan and I train is it's, it's a lot of density of intensity and we do long buildups. So, 
So it is a little bit riskier, but it's kind of that high risk, high reward scenario where, um, if you can survive the training, like you're going to be prepared for the marathon. Um, but I think, you know, for me, looking back at the last couple of years, um, you know, the first injury I had was after tripping and I really wrenched my SI joint really bad tripping. So that was just kind of like a freak accident, which, you know, maybe had to do with, yeah, I think you're on a little bit of a shorter leash, you know, when you're training hard, like, whereas maybe you can like come out of a fall or something more unscathed if your body isn't already like kind of on that line, but, but sometimes it is like freak accidents. And then, um, and then my, my next injury, like was kind of more rooted in, in an injury that happened a while ago that really changed my stride. And, um, I've been working for years to try to get my stride fully back in my, and strength back in my knee from, um, from this accident I had where I, I tripped and sliced through the tendon and broke my kneecap. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think it's like when you're when you're running a lot, it's like whatever the weak link is will often get exposed. So, um, so I ended up with a peroneal injury that led to a stress fracture when I was coming back and, and favoring it. And so, so, you know, I really had to kind of take a, a step back and look at how I was doing things and saying like, okay, there's definitely a reason for each of these injuries that maybe if I had been smarter, in this way, like they wouldn't have happened. But at the same time, I need to like take a step back from the density and volume so that I can make it to the line healthy this time. So we, it was took a lot of communication with Ryan to kind of minimize that risk together, but still feel like we were hitting everything we needed to. Well, you know, I've never quite heard it expressed in that way when you said, you need the pounding. And I think it's a profound statement because we talk so much about cross-training and getting the benefits of this by doing that. And it seems that there's no substitute for the exact specificity of, in, in your case, the pounding. If it's a cyclist, then it's uh, climbing the hills for seven hours and not doing any pounding because if they go yeah. for a 30-minute jog, they're going to be sore for four days. And it, it seems... Um, I don't know. Do you know much about the science there? I mean, what is actually happening when you're going out there and, and training and doing uh, the, the density of intensity, as you call it, and uh, in, in, in basically damaging your muscles and I guess making them get used to it over time? Yeah, it is. And I I'm, don't know exactly the science, but a lot of it is the eccentric load, you know? So it's when you're running when you're hitting down on the ground, especially running down hills, the eccentric loads even higher. Um, and so it's like, I, I don't remember how many times your body weight when you're running downhill versus uphill. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of strengthening all your joints, ligaments, your muscles to that, which even you can strengthen your quads in like a different way through like cycling, but it's kind of that needing that eccentric contraction that, even if you have really strong legs from biking is not going to be the same running the Boston marathon. Um, it really <laughs> is specific. So, so I actually use a, a squat platform called eccentric and, um, it kind of gives you an increased eccentric load as you squat down. Um, it's like a flywheel actually. So uh, a lot of that is to, to kind of maximize those benefits and, and get ready for that part of the marathon. Now, how does that stuff mix in with uh, the necessary high volume of running that you're doing? Is it is it 
strategically thrown in there at certain times? Are you going over to the machine every day and getting a little bit of eccentric load, whether you ran 20 miles that morning or how does that work? No, just a couple of times a week. But yeah, that's kind of the art of training. You know, you have to like figure out the load you can handle and still recover from, you know, and I like to keep my recovery days purely recovery. So I try not to do a lot of like strength stuff on those days. And I try to pack it in on my hard days and make those really hard. Um, everyone's different that way. Some people prefer to, to do it on, on their easy days, but I've found making those like fully recovery, um, is better for me. And when you say fully recovery, are you taking a walk, uh, using the stopwatch with your, your fast moving daughters? What is a recovery day uh, for you? Oh no. Yeah. It still involves running usually about two hours of running. Um, it's just at an easier pace and kind of letting my body dictate the pace, um, versus like the hard workouts are very specific. You're trying to narrow in on race pace for a good amount of time or, or work on speed or different things. Um, so those days are a lot more demanding, but, but the recovery days, I still try to cover usually around 15 to 16 miles broken up between two runs, uh, longer in the morning. But, um, but then that pace can vary seven to eight minute mile pace at altitude, depending on how, how I'm feeling after the hard day. Wow. That's not much of a recovery day. That's pretty fantastic. I mean, I guess, is that going back toward the, the goal of maintaining that eccentric load rather than taking uh, 48 hours and not running a step or, or some other envision recovery strategy? Yeah, it is definitely trying to uh, keep callousing your, your body, your muscles, and keep building your aerobic capacity. Um, and I think the best way is always the most specific movement to what you're racing at, you know? So I think cross training has its place for sure, but it's always gonna, you're going to get the most bang for your buck actually doing the, the exact movement. Um, so yeah, a marathon training is a lot about kind of finding that sweet spot where your body, how much it can handle, uh, without sacrificing the quality on the hard days. Yeah, what's interesting to me, listeners, we're talking to Sarah Hall, who just shattered performance barriers. How old are you now, Sarah? I am 36. Okay, so she's 36, and she's at the at the top of her game running that 222, which comes out to be, isn't that like 526, 525 per mile for 26 straight miles? It is, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. mind-blowing. I mean, anyone, uh, if you're unfamiliar with that pace, go to the running track and try to run uh, an 80-second quarter. And do that a hundred times in a row. And then basically you're hanging with Sarah for the marathon. It's mind blowing because the 82nd quarter is, is really moving by, by most standards and most runners. Um, but what's interesting to me is you describe your training and your recovery day of running for two hours at a decent pace at high altitude is we have uh, this other kind of influence of sports science and you read an article in the magazine about the study that showed that uh, people who just do hit training high intensity short duration can improve faster than uh, someone who's who's running too many miles and and you can make a mistake by running too many miles but it seems like at the elite level we still have this formula where there's so much hard work there's no shortcuts and it doesn't seem like anyone's hacked this reality that you have to be out there on your feet for hours every day. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you nailed it. It's like, what is your goal? You know? So 
if your goal is just to complete a marathon, it's going to be totally different than, you know, trying to go from 224 to 222 in the marathon, um, kind of those. Uh, and I think that is where, um, you know, you look at like how the East Africans train and it's very similar, Ethiopia, Kenya, even how we train here in the U S. And so I think, um, you know, at least not yet, maybe someone will come along and find there's a better way, but that seems to be the, the recipe for success. And you find that you said there's a little bit of uh, variation among individuals where someone's recovery day might look different than yours, but overall from your time training with elites starting way back at, at Stanford and carrying on through the different camps, I know you guys were up in Mammoth for so long with a lot of other elite runners. Um, how much variation do you see overall? Are there some people that thrive with half the mileage of Sarah Hall or is it kind of like look at your PR and then you can kind of uh, correlate exactly how hard they're training? Yeah, I would say there's probably some more variation when you look at professionals on the track. Um, I, I think that there's some people that are more lower volume, high intensity, and then some that really work, like run a lot of miles and, and are not maybe doing quite as often intensity. I would say in the marathon, there's a little bit less of that. Um, I think the mileage is so key to have for the event that it's, uh, I would say, people are, are, are might vary with how durable they are. So they might supplement with cross training or just, um, just run less miles and stuff. But, uh, I would say the overall goals are similar and kind of the same, uh, philosophy would be similar. Uh, here's another question. I'm putting you on the spot. I'm, I'm sorry. It's a big one, but we, we have this, uh, notion that, uh, there's some, unhealthy aspects of endurance training. And we see this especially at the recreational level. And I suppose you could say even at the elite level, because if you get an injury or you have uh, an athlete that goes down with mono or, you know, other sort of illnesses, um, you're challenging your health as you pursue these these peak goals. And you mentioned, you know, going down from 224 to 222 is a different deal than trying to cross the finish line in under five hours. And so I'm curious, is there a way to do what you're doing in a healthy manner? Or are you basically putting your health uh, on hold or at risk as you do these uh, quote-unquote buildups where you're taking, uh, I guess, a, a percentage of the year and really zoning into this position where you're on that red line and you're capable of getting a cold or getting bronchitis or getting an overuse injury? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think I've found... I feel the healthiest I've ever felt right now and I'm the most fit I've ever been. So to me, I don't think you do need to sacrifice it. Um, I've taken maybe a slightly different approach than some elites where I would say like the majority kind of like they do kind of have this like race weight that they is maybe like not healthy and sustainable for them all year round, but they like really intentionally try to whittle down to that by the race. And then they're really on that line where they could get hurt or sick or, um, but for me, I've, I found, I just kind of have a, like a sweet spot where I don't even really weigh myself ever. And I just listen to my body and eat like when I'm hungry, when I'm feeling even a little bit low blood sugar, like never letting myself get hungry. Um, I'm very rarely ever sick, even though I have four kids in school and, um, and I, I have had these injuries, but, um, but I don't feel like 
in any way that it's from like uncompromised health, you know, where you're feeling like your body's breaking down. Um, so, so yeah, I, I guess that's my, more my approach. Um, I would say that's a little less than norm. So I don't know if I'm doing it right necessarily, but I found that's most sustainable for me and where I think I run the best. Now, if you want to get to what, 218, 30 Olympic medal, uh, what's it going to take? Do you have this, this vision of, uh, things that you need to change or further sacrifice or continued progress? What's the secret formula at this point? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm right now focused on continuing to just do what I've been doing. Cause I've, I've been improving about a minute per buildup. So, um, so for a while I was, it was like very linear. Like I ran 231, then I ran 230, then I ran 228, then I ran 227, then I ran 226. So it was like, and I could see that in my training. It was like, my tempo's got a few seconds faster a mile. My long run's got a few seconds faster a mile. And that over the course of a marathon is about a minute. So, um, so right now that's kind of my focus. Um, obviously I think the longer I can stay injury free because, um, the, this last fall and winter was the longest stretch of injury I've ever had actually. Um, and so that's, you know, that takes time to build back. And, um, and so I'm hoping to, to just keep stacking a lot of really good work, not without injuries on top of each other and, and keep chipping away at that time. Right, right. That's got to be such a bummer when you're going, going, and then boom, all of a sudden you're on the sideline. How have you dealt with that over the over the years since you've had uh, your your fair share in recent years? Yeah, this, the last couple of years were challenging because before that I had very few injuries, actually. Um, in my professional career, I'd really only had a couple injuries and they were from like tripping, basically <laughs> tripping and falling. And like, like I said, I, I, um, broke my kneecap and tore my tendon and that was a pretty severe one. Um, but I had a couple other like tripping injuries and, um, so I felt pretty durable. So I, I think that like, I had a little bit of a sense of like invincibility where I was like, like, I don't get overuse injuries. So like, I'm going to keep like pushing the envelope and keep finding my lines, like where they're at. And, and I think I got to that point a couple of years ago where all of a sudden it was like, okay, I think I'm finding those lines because, um, this is unlike me to have, have these kind of injuries. So, so yeah, it, it's really challenging at the time. Um, cause I love to run. It's like my favorite part of the day and my outlet in so many ways of just like mentally and spiritually. And, um, and so to all of a sudden be inside on a machine in the gym, is just, it's torture, you know, plus like (laughs) I love to compete and so not getting to compete. Like I'm like finding ways to get my competitive outlet other ways or, you know, it's, it's definitely really mentally, um, mentally more than anything, like dragging yourself to the gym every day is like always a battle. But (laughs) I found actually that that actually really translates when I do come back to running, like I'm able to like, like, it's not hard to focus at all because, I've had to mentally get up for all of those things that running feels like cake compared to that. So I've I've actually come back from injuries fairly well in races and stuff because of that. So it has its upside, I guess. 
Yeah, I think you uh, increase your appreciation, your gratitude for being able to be mm-hmm. out there. I know from going through so many injuries and setbacks, and I guess also relating to uh, when I when I uh, started working full time job for the accounting firm, dreaming of being a triathlete, and then quitting and making a go for it. It's like the motivation to train is so strong because you know that you could otherwise be in a in an office or in in your example. Uh, you're not injured. So any day out on the trail is going to be uh, a great day rather than, you know, kind of getting, getting lost in that, uh, taking running for granted. Absolutely. Yeah. So what about diet? Uh, how have you guys evolved? I, you, for listeners unaware, Ryan Hall is uh, a guy who hangs out at Sarah's house a lot and lifts weights in the garage, I guess, and um, lives there. So how have you guys evolved your approach to diet over the years? Yeah, we've tried some different things over the years. Um, it's always fun to experiment with like going gluten-free or different things. And I don't think anything we've that way has really like, uh, really stuck where we're like, Oh, this is, you know, keto or whatever is like really like the way to go for us. So we've kind of gravitated back towards like just a pretty balanced diet and, trying to get as nutrient dense as possible. But at the same time, when you're running as much as I am, like you do need simple carbs. Like you do need like, um, <laughs> free pass, like, Sarah Hall, bring it on. <laughs> well, it, I mean, if you, if you eat a bunch of kale the night before a really hard, long tempo, <laughs> like you're asking for it out there, you know, like you're going to have to make some bathroom stops probably. And so it, you kind of learn like there's like what's healthy, but then there's like what's practical for like, your performance. And I think that's a a little bit of a difference too. Like we talked about with training is like, what is your goal? Like if your goal is to be as fast as possible, then I think your, your diet is going to look different than if you're trying to just have, like you're able to go slow and long for a long time and you want to have as healthy of a diet long, like for longevity and different things, like then, you know, you could go a lower carb route and, and like, And I think that that can really work. But I think if your goal is to maximize speed, that that's going to be pretty hard, in my opinion. Yeah, well said. And I think um, most people that are out there on the starting line of New York City Marathon, what, 60,000 people, most of them are doing a pure endurance endeavor. And so we hear these incredible stories. I mean, people will email me, Sarah, saying, uh, guess what? I finished an Ironman race and uh, all I ate was a steak the night before. And then I had water and uh, liquid aminos for 13 hours. And it's like amazing wow. uh, what the body can do. But that's um, a little different story than doing these it's basically um you know you're basically running at um near anaerobic threshold for for a couple hours which most people can't possibly do but yeah you're you're burning a lot of glycogen out there yeah and you want it to be as efficient as possible so you know you can burn fat but it's not as efficient so um so yeah i think definitely you look at like the the Kenyans and Ethiopians like they hit the carbs pretty hard and and they're pretty simple carbs so um so a lot of that is based on like where they live but i think at the same time times i've tried to like be like oh i'm just going to do like kale and sweet potatoes cuz that has more vitamins or whatever like you're not actually getting as much energy the next day that you need so um so yeah it's kind of i think a a good process of trying out how 
how you can fit as much nutrients in, but still maximize your performance. Right. I guess you learned your lessons out there. Like you said, you're going to be hurting at mile 17 if you didn't have a big enough dinner the previous night. And it's such a different um, parameter than most of us exist in where we're going through the day completely well fed at all times for decades on end without break. Uh, But you guys are, are pushing that limit where you, I guess you have more leeway too. Yeah. Yeah. And we're training twice a day too. So it's, it's kind of, you're kind of needing that constant fuel. So I want to know if you're tripping out about this Ryan Hall thing like I am, having seen him in front of your eyes go from, what, 129 on the Olympic marathon starting line, and now he's he's over two bills. Is it something like that? Um, yeah, he's like, I think, 180s, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm used to it now. But, you don't give yeah, him a hard time. Like, you're not the man I fell in love with at Stanford. You're, you're twice <laughs> the man almost. Well, I, it was an adjustment. I, I definitely at times was like, um, can we find a happy medium here? Because, uh, yeah, he looked quite different, like, and, you know, like, like snored, you know, because he put on all this weight, you know, there's all these things that like, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, you're totally different. But, um, but yeah, I think he's finding a happy medium actually a little bit. He's running some more now with me, which is fun. And um, Ryan's a very extreme person, so it's kind of like, yeah, like the pendulum goes from like being severely malnourished looking to like swings totally the other way with him. But, uh, but hopefully he finds kind of a middle ground. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's funny. Uh, and, and also fascinating, you know, talking to him and, and learning about his story and some of his reflections where, you know, some people, the, the naysayers will look at it and say, oh, he, he retired when he was, quote, only 33. And gee, he could have gone as long as Meb uh, if he had been uh, more sensible with his training. But I contend that, you know, in order to break the American record and, and get to that very highest level, uh, you have to you have to be an extreme personality, as you describe, and really go for it in training, uh, rather than just try to uh, you know bag a uh, a conservative approach and and be consistent. And that I I wouldn't say um, you know those those are what Ryan's known for is is busting out records and and going crazy. So he had a, actually a long time at the elite level, even if he did uh, walk at an age that was younger than the next competitor. But I'm I'm curious, like as you. Um, uh, juxtapose that with your own personality, your own approach, your own uh, training methods. What have you uh, learned? What have you uh, adopted? And what's the, um, you know, what, what's been the um, kind of the reflections watching him go through his career and you guys doing this together and now he's supporting you? Yeah, you know, I, I'm really um, lucky because I feel like I get to benefit from the good and the bad of his career, you know, like the mistakes he made that he'll be the first to admit. And actually his, his film just came out a documentary that they did on his last, I guess it was leading up to the 2012 Olympics through his retirement. Um, and you know, we watched that and like kind of cringe at some of the mistakes he made that for sure, like led to, to were part of that. But, um, but then there, like you said, I think, also a lot of it is this personality and like, um, the good of that, of his personality allowed those high heights. But then when you're not improving for a really long time, like that's, that's not fun. And I think that's, what's kept me in the sport as long as I have, because, um, I've been improving every year. So it's been really fun. And so I, I can see why he wasn't enjoying it because 
improvement's addictive and you want to like keep going. You want to see what more is there, but he felt like he had kind of maximized his potential. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely have a more moderate personality, but, um, but he's definitely rubbed off on me too, where pretty much every marathon I've done, I've kind of taken a pretty big swing and I've never neg- positive or a negative split a marathon until Berlin. Um, cause I always wanted to like run faster than maybe I was ready for at the time. And, um, so I think, I think that's necessary. That's good as to like, to want to get to that spot, even when you're not quite there. And, um, and so, yeah, he's, I think he's rubbed off on me in the good ways. You know, I've been able to learn from a, a lot from him, obviously, and his mentality of just running really fearlessly. Cause I think fear is really the number one killer of, of being able to have big performances. Mm. So the more you can get freed up from fear of failure or wherever it's coming from fear of not uh, meeting others' expectations or your own expectations or whatever, like uh, then the more free you are to take risks and like, and actually have, yeah, those breakthroughs that he had. Wow. Let's talk about that some more. That's, that's so interesting that fear, even, even at your level, um, is, is a factor in, in holding people back. And it's, uh, I remember, um, Kevin Young, the, still the, uh, world record holder at 400 meter hurdles. There was a, a headline article when he, when he won the gold and destroyed the world record. And he said, uh, what was holding him back for a while was fear of success. Because then, hmm. what is he going to strive for, and what's going to get him, you know, dr- driven at this at this huge level to to perform every single day? And he had to he had to break through a fear of success, not not to mention fear of failure. But um, that, that's that's interesting that um, that's that's still in play even when you know looking from the outside. It's like, what are you afraid of? You're you're awesome. You're breaking records. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think we all have something that. Um that if you like get down to the root of it is there's some kind of fear there. And, um, and I think seeing Ryan's career was really neat for me because, um, for him, like he really didn't care what other people (laughs) thought about him. Um, and even, you know, in this age where there's like message boards where people are, are so quick, if you have a bad performance, just to like bash you and, and jump all over you and reporters writing things like Ryan didn't read any of that stuff. Like he just didn't even, he's like, why do I care what these people think? You know? And that really allowed him, like he went out in his first marathon and like, uh, you know, most people are just trying not to like blow up in their first marathon. They're trying to like run really conservative. And he just took the lead at the London marathon, like in front of world champions and world record holders and everything. And, um, no one does that, you know, but I think he was just so free. Um, and so, yeah, that I've really learned a lot from that. It's taken me more time because, um, like I definitely, like I had early success in the sport and really built an identity around my success. And, and then that kind of got challenged when in college and early on as a pro, I I really struggled despite like putting more and more into it to try to um, to perform well, like for, you know, our bodies aren't machines as much as we want them to be. And, and I wasn't having the performances I was capable of. And, and I really like, I started to fear failure more than I looked forward to the opportunity to race. And, um, and that I think really, it took God, um, really getting a hold of my heart and being like, this is how I've created you. Like you are worthy of love. 
just for being you because I've created you. And, um, and it doesn't have to do with anything you accomplish. Like you don't have to accomplish anything the rest of your life. And, um, and just like having that really go deep and like, know that you are valued and worthy, like without having to perform. Um, and then once you, you kind of know who you are apart from kind of running success, then it's not being challenged every time you step to the line, you know, and you're able to just like, yeah, like now, like I just raced a week after Berlin, which like it takes guts to get, go to the line, you know, and you're not sure what your body's going to give you. But I just felt totally free, like zero nerves, like, because I just felt like I couldn't fail, you know, like that really like when your identity's secure, it's like, you have that feeling of like, I can't fail, you know, like obviously the race could not go well, but that doesn't mean I'm a failure or I'm failing in life or things. Right. I guess there's a, a spectrum here that we all need to understand. And you're probably on that, you're on that level of uh, high performing, hard driving hard on yourself and needing to embrace that, that you just described so beautifully. And I guess if there's someone out there who's um, having difficulty getting off the couch and, you know, they need to accept themselves that they're, they're okay too. It's sort of the same message, but maybe a different execution where, um, you know, if, if someone's uh, imprisoned by self-limiting beliefs and not giving themselves a chance because they're, uh, you know, they, they failed before they even started, they're kind of in the same boat as the, the hard driving athlete or career person who's, you know, uh, fearing failure as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that, um, you know, people that have a hard time losing weight, for example, you know, like you can just be like, like God made me this way and I love myself, but actually, you know, there's like, yeah, he does like love you just as you are. And like, and you're worthy of love just as you are, but like, we're meant to have healthy bodies. Like what can we do to like get after it, you know? And so it's kind of both sides of it, like where you're, it's not like it defines you, but then you're free to like go after something, you know, because that's just like how we're created. Yeah. Well said. That's, that's, um, I hope we can, um, rewind the tape listener. Cause this is, this is big stuff. That's kind of, that's kind of the <laughs> secret right there is okay. Now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, how can I go after it? Exactly. Love it. Yeah. Or just being physically fit. You know, it's like, like our bodies are meant to move. Like it's, I, I think it's having kids, like it's, uh, it's a little tricky now. Um, I mean, I'm new to parenting, so I don't really, I can't really give like advice necessarily, but oh, sure you can. Like now it's like, <laughs> people are kind of like, well, my kid's musical, so they don't do like any activity ever. And it's like, no, actually like kids are meant to be active. Like we all should be moving and being active and like just our culture allows for, we can be sedentary and like survive, but that's not really how we were created, you know? And so I like with my kids, I'm like, I'm not going to make you run, but like you need to do something that's like making your heart beat a little bit. Like it can be biking or jumping on the trampoline or taking the dog for an exploration walk. But it's like, we are going to move our bodies somehow, you know? And I think adults the same way, like, um, yeah, not coming down on yourself if you're not, um, like, really fit, but like, still like, okay, what's the first step we can take to like moving our bodies, you know? Just do it, says Sarah Hall. No, no excuses. Yeah. (laughs) Get out there. Uh, 
Oh, so you said something. Um, my, my eyebrows raised. We're not on video, so we can't tell, but you raced a week after your extraordinary marathon performance. And then I read that you're tuning up for, uh, another major fall marathon. So, uh, tell us about the, uh, bionic woman here, how you can bounce back so quickly. <laughs> well, um, I haven't done it yet. So I, I'm doing everything I can to recover well, but. Yeah, I, I'm definitely a little unorthodox when it comes to like racing frequency, especially after marathons. Most elites take like one to two weeks off and just kind of build back slowly. But um, it was really because after my first marathon, um, it, my my debut marathon went really poorly. I was pretty underprepared for the amount of downhill and like I was talking about the pounding and and it was a really hot day and I just I ran pretty poorly but I qualified for the world cross country championships 13 days later. And so after the race, like I was, I was devastated, but I was like, I've put in so much work for this race. Like I'm going to like redeem this somehow. And so I just started throwing myself into recovery and like, and being like, I'm going to see if maybe I can get my legs or turned around in time for world cross. And I ended up placing 19th, I think, at the world cross country is the highest placing I'd ever done or in the highest placing of a U.S. runner that day. And, um, and so it kind of opened my mind to like, maybe the marathon doesn't have to be a hard stop in my season. And like, maybe like, whereas it's kind of conventional thinking that it, it has to be, it needs to be other, your body needs that recovery time. But especially the more I do the training, like I run, pretty hard marathons just in training. Um, and, and then I'm working out hard again a couple of days later. And it's just part of like when your body's really prepared for it. Um, I found especially flat marathons like Berlin just don't, don't take that much out of me. Um, especially if I go into it feeling really good, like a lot of times, like how you go in is how you come out as well. And, mm. but, um, but I qualify that with saying like flat marathons because Boston, which I, I mentioned I was underprepared for and really hilly. I couldn't walk normally for a, almost a week. <laughs> I was on crutches at first and that took me a really long time. So, um, so I don't always force the comeback, but, um, but I knew going into Berlin that I would likely come out of it well. And, and I wanted to run New York city marathon for a couple of reasons. The main reason being, I wanted um, some more experience over a hilly marathon for the Olympic trials, which are in Atlanta and is on the hilliest course ever, ever created for <laughs> marathoning. Ever created um, by, by, by mankind. Yeah, it really is. It has three times uphill of Boston almost. And, oh, mercy. Um, yeah. So, so I, I'd hoped Boston would be, would prepare me for that. But since I was injured before and didn't have enough training, it didn't end up being that, that, um, race I needed. So I felt like New York was a good fit for me and still gave me time to recover in time for Atlanta. Right. So when is Atlanta and is that course designed to approximate the Olympic course? Tell us about both those races. Well, that's, what's kind of ironic is the Olympic course is like pancake flat, like almost no elevation, <laughs> but, um, but it's February 29th is the Olympic trials in Atlanta and, and they're doing a great job putting it together. And, um, what's cool is it's, it's kind of all around Olympic park, which has the big, the, big Olympic rings. And so the production side of the race will be really cool. Um, and it'll be fun to be in a big city and hopefully get a great turnout out there. Cause, um, they have 
I think the largest road race, one of the largest road races in the world, the Peachtree Road Race there. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm excited for it and trying to prepare well for that. And New York will be a big piece of that for me. Yeah, I guess that's your magic formula is to to keep keep putting it out there. I, I guess you would say don't try this at home, but um, it's very interesting because uh, Kipchoge uh, recently published a lot of material about the detail of his, of his training, and it didn't appear that he had a lot of uh, emphasis on tapering or reducing his volume, even in the course of competing in major marathons. It was like he was always up around 120 to 130 miles a week, uh, and you know, this is sort of a new concept because we've been we've been told that we have to do these prolonged tapers and prolong, you know, end the season after a marathon, as you described. And so, I guess you guys are busting out some of those traditional notions. I would love to see his training. Yeah, I have heard that about him not tapering, which I love to taper. Like I respond really well to rest, so that I don't know if I would respond well to that. But again, it's kind of individual. You know, like. Ryan and I were, we're, we like to experiment. We like to, he definitely experimented a lot in his career. So that's kind of nice because I can benefit from (laughs) his failed experiments at times, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's just fun to try new things. You know, I think that's some of the fearlessness too, is like not taking yourself so seriously, like being willing to just look, think outside the box and, and then if it doesn't work out, there's always another race. That's a great attitude. What's what? What have been some of the successful experiments? Uh, and I want to ask you in that context uh, your commitment to altitude over the course of your career and how that's really worked out. Yeah. Well, as far as successful experiments, I think um, I think similar to what I was saying about race frequency. Like for me, um, a lot of times it just is easier for me to like pop down from altitude to sea level. So I do live, like, as you mentioned it in Flagstaff, Arizona full time now, which has just been for a year and four months or so uh, that our family moved here before we had been doing stints here for a long time. And, and as well as, uh, living full time in mammoth lakes in the beginning of our career. So we have a lot of experience with altitude, but, um, but with family, as you know, you can't bounce around and too much. So, um, so we just made the move. And, and so sometimes, you know, I use races just as a tool of like, I want to go down to sea level and, and run marathon pace with some company around. And that's fun for me versus doing a 15 mile tempo run on Lake Mary road and Blackstaff as I've done over and over again. Um, so that's, yeah, again, like a little bit unconventional, like a lot of times people don't race a lot in marathon buildups and they kind of just like the grind and routine of, of staying uh, in their element, but, um, but you kind of just have to know yourself, you know, like I like change. I like change of scenery. And, um, some people like Ryan, he just liked to hibernate and kind of get really focused, like a boxer preparing for his big, uh, match. And that's really what made him excited. Um, so a lot of it's just, yeah, figuring out what makes you tick and then going with that. And so the altitude, I'm wondering for, for you, what percentage of it is, this red blood cell benefit versus just being in these beautiful natural mountain towns and having that lifestyle, that sort of rural experience, fresh air, all those other peripheral benefits. Yeah, I would say the majority of the reason we're here is for the other ben- the other parts of living in the mountains. Like we just like the mountains. We like 
aspen trees in the fall and dirt roads and Flagstaff has like endless dirt roads. Like I can run right out my door on 50 miles basically of like perfect surface dirt road. Um, and that's hard to get in a city, um, for sure. And, um, and just kind of a simpler lifestyle, you know, we don't like this between training and our kids, we don't have a lot else going on and it's easy in a small town just to enjoy that. Um, but yeah, you know, there is the red blood cell component and I, I do get blood work and I have seen improvements since living up here, um, which is encouraging because you do take a hit in some ways because you're running a slower pace. So you're kind of neurologically getting used to a slower pace. So a lot of times, even when you go down to sea level, like a training run, you may not even run faster because you're kind of neurologically locked into that. So um, I think it's a balance. Like I think you do want opportunities to turn it over more. Um, but, but yeah, I think the net benefits of living up here are big. Uh, on Ryan's show, he talked a lot about this amazing story of uh, getting your daughters and uh, that whole amazing journey. So I, I want to just ask you, like, how do you do this uh, super mom role now where you're training at world-class level and have the, the busy full house going on? Yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, it's something that takes a lot of intentionality. And I think about it all the time, like how I'm doing in both areas. And, um, you know, both things are pretty like all consuming, I would say, um, like my sport and, and being a mom, it's, it doesn't stop when your kids go to school. You know, there's always things I'm doing for my, my oldest is being recruited right now. And that's like a part-time job in itself. Like I just came back from a recruiting trip with her last night and, um, you're making sure they have all their ducks in a row for the NCAA qualification and all this. And so, yeah, it's, it's really challenging. And, you know, I definitely have moments where I feel pretty overwhelmed and that it's not possible, but, but then I just try to be encouraged by the fact that I've been able to improve every year since being a mom. And, um, you know, my lifestyle is different than before I had kids. I was able to recover a lot easier and, um, and just be more focused in a lot of ways. But, um, but I try to just remind myself, but you're still improving. So like just celebrate that and, and try not to compare yourself to your old lifestyle or to your competitors or anyone else. Well, reading your, your comments, you always have this wonderfully evolved perspective and uh, pursuing a, a calling higher than just your selfish interest as a runner. And lo and behold, look, it, it's, it's paid off with constant improvement. It, it's a phenomenal story. So, oh my gosh, I, I wish you the best of luck, especially in New York and in Atlanta next year. And what's your future vision? How long? I mean, na- nowadays, um, the athletes can continue their careers for much longer than, than before. Uh, you can make a living doing this. Uh, the training, the recovery advancements look like uh, you, can, you can carry on for a long time. What, what do you think is going to happen? Well, thank you for the support. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm, I've been doing this so much longer than I pictured myself doing it. Um, my passion was really in kind of international development and, and seeing areas of extreme poverty like be lifted out of that. And, um, so I thought I would do that actually straight out of college. And now it's been like a 14 and a half year kind of tangent, but, um, but you know, through my running, we've been able to make a big difference in these areas through the Hall Steps Foundation that my husband and I started. So in the future, um, we want to do more hands-on work, um, with 
our foundation's projects, but for the time being, at least through prize money and engaging other runners, fundraising at races, like we've been able to to fund some really great work. Right now we're focused on Ethiopia and vulnerable women and children there, um, as well as some education projects there. And so, um, so yeah, that's been able, I've been able to still pour into that passion of mine through my running. And that's something God kind of spoke to me when I was deciding whether to, to start a professional career or not. He was like, you can do more through your running than you can if you just go move to Ethiopia right now. And that's definitely come to be the case. And, and so I'm really encouraged by that and just, just enjoying improving. Like I don't feel my age yet. So, um, I'm hopeful that I can just keep, uh, keep improving from here and enjoying it. Sarah Hall, a great inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us. We learned, learned a lot. I, I appreciate your conversation and whew, we'll be, we'll be watching out for you. So, so keep it up. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Da, 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 da. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. So, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she so she loves those sort of, we love them as well. We have uh we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the the ranch, um the avocado oil we use all the time. And and so, you know, that's completely genuine and I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.